it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. This sound like theme music, motivation to grind and get you through it. Church. I'm bothered, never losing, check the score. Jamel show improving. Trophy. Don't make me tell you 50-11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. The context in which I use this episode's word of the week is very different from how I was taught to use it growing up. When I was growing up, it was only used in a religious context, specifically a Christian context. I heard the elders use it when referring to somebody who had started to either slowly or quickly abdicate their pledges that they had made to God. The word of the week is backsliding. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. Yeah. Backsliding. But I'm not using this word the same way I heard the Christians use it. I'm using it in specific reference to America's crumbling democracy. For the first time ever, the United States has been added to the annual list of backsliding democracies, according to the International Institute for Democracy and Electoral Assistance, a think tank that tracks these sort of things. According to the report, democracy in this country started to go bad in 2019, though some of us would argue it started before 2019. They cited a decline in civil liberties and checks on the government. This organization says there are, quote, serious problems with the fundamentals of democracy. Per the report, Donald Trump questioning the legitimacy of the election was key in all this, as well as a, quote, decline in the quality of freedom of association and assembly during the summer of protests in 2020. The secretary general of this organization, Kevin Cassis Zamora, said the visible deterioration of democracy in the United States, as seen in the increasing tendency to contest credible election results, the efforts to suppress participation in elections and the runaway polarization is one of the most concerning developments. My greatest fear for this country isn't that we'll be overtaken by some big villainous country. My fear is that this country will crumble because of what I call death by a thousand paper cuts. Following the election, a number of states created voting laws that made it more difficult for people to vote, specifically black and brown people. Recently, the state of Ohio, specifically Ohio Republicans, redrew its congressional map and awarded 66% of its districts to Republicans. It's also happening in Texas. This is called gerrymandering which is a political tactic often used to manipulate the boundaries of an electoral district. But more importantly, it has been used frequently to disenfranchise black and brown voters and seriously undermine black and brown representation in political office. Let me school you on how gerrymandering works. Let's say you were on a committee that was overseeing your school's election for class president and you wanted a particular candidate to win. Let's say this candidate represents the nerd party. All right. Now, the nerds at your school make up a smaller percentage of the school population. And for the sake of this very lengthy example, let's say the nerds are all located on the third floor. But the first two floors are made up of independents and jocks. As the election official in charge to give your candidate a better chance of winning, you draw an election map where the people no longer vote according to what floor they're on. 
You spread out the nerd vote so that the nerds can now vote on the first floor with the independents based off this new map that you have drawn, because then the nerds can influence the independents. And then you make sure all the jocks have to vote on the second floor only. Sure, you'll lose that floor, but because some nerds can vote on the third floor and the first floor, their influence is spread. Even though the nerds don't have the biggest population at the school and it's not bigger than both those two groups, they become far more influential just based off how the map is drawn. Gerrymandering is just one of many ways this country is sliding rapidly into authoritarianism and becoming a country of minority rule. In 2013, the Supreme Court gutted significant parts of the Voting Rights Act that was passed in 1965. In 2013, the Supreme Court freed nine states to change their election laws without advanced federal approval. So if the Voting Rights Act were still in its original form, all that gerrymandering business that happened in Ohio and Texas wouldn't have happened because it would have required federal approval and that approval was not going to come. This is why it is so disappointing and critical that the John Lewis Voting Rights Act hasn't passed, because if it did, any jurisdiction that wanted to pass election laws or gerrymander, if they had a history of discrimination, they would need approval from the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department. I know with everything going on, hearing about voting and legislation and election laws and gerrymandering seems boring as fuck. It also doesn't seem that pressing to a lot of people, particularly those who are worried about, frankly, other shit. Student loans, coming up with college tuition for their kids, putting food on the table, finding a decent place to live, escaping violence, surviving racism. Shit, just trying to exist and be sane in this place. It's all just so fucking exhausting. Democracy, voting, those things seem to be insignificant and intangible but democracy might literally be the most important piece of all of this it is the promise of it that has kept so many of us still in the fight even when every cell in our bodies is demanding that we just give up and worry about our own shit the washington post motto is democracy dies in darkness the reason they chose that motto is that they wanted to draw attention to the fact that when there isn't absolute transparency democracy dies but allow me to push back on that. Democracy doesn't die in the darkness. It dies right in front of our faces, right in the light, bit by bit, piece by piece, until suddenly we don't even recognize what's happening anymore. Backsliding, the word of the week. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. And now on to today's show. My guest today has such an incredible story because she found her purpose in such a unique way. Actually, let me be more accurate. Her purpose found her. We knew her initially as a dynamic young actress who starred in three iconic movies, House Party, Baby Boy, Sister Act. She's had a bevy of acting roles throughout her career. And as successful as she is as an actor, her most impactful role is as a wellness coach, mentor and motivator. She has been a life coach for some of the biggest celebrities in the business. Gabrielle Union, Anne Hathaway, Lindsay Lohan, Steve Harvey, and so many others. She's also got a new show on TV One called Life Therapy, where she helps everyday people sort out their lives as she gives them personal tools that they need to break through. This woman opens her mouth and out come the gems. Just amazing. Coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, AJ Johnson. 
we brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I'm going to start with Ghana with you because I just went for the first time two months ago. Right. And so when I saw you put a Kua in your profile on Instagram, you have it here uh, on the screen. We're doing this via Zoom. And I was like, oh, you were born on a Wednesday. Are you? No, I'm Essie. I was born on a Sunday, I believe. Sunday. Yeah. Yes, Sunday. Right. So uh, for those who are listening and don't know, if you go through with a naming ceremony, when you go through, uh, when you go to Ghana, you are given what is your your name. I can't remember my last name. My husband is Kwaku. I forgot what day that was exactly. But you have been to Ghana like eight times or is it more than that now? More. I went to Ghana probably 12 times in 2019 alone. Wow. You know, I I don't know if you know that how it kicked off. You know, when I first went with the Full Circle Festival and I was the guest of, you know, close friends, um, Boris and Nicole Cujo Parker, Nicole Ari Parker and Bozema St. John and the whole group that went that year. Yep. You know, I know Bo's. Y'all left all the black people here in America and went. I remember this vividly. <laughs> left us behind, but that's OK. <laughs> but let me tell you something. I had seen them go the year before. And then I was like, you know, how do they know each other? Like, not that they can't know each other, but I was like, huh, you know, I'm close to Nicole. I know Bo's, but how do they know each other to be like hanging out in Africa together? Like, what's going on? And I started stalking their Instagrams for like that year. And finally, I think Nicole posted random, not randomly, this picture of her saying, can't wait to go back. And I was like, uh, don't leave me if you go, you know, with the big eye emoji. And so she called me and she was like, listen, sis, for real, like we're going. And I was like, no, 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 serious, for real. I want to go. Long story short, I went with them and my birthday's January 2nd. So it's kind of like a big birthday gift to myself, but I had no idea the gift of our history and my understanding of who we are as, as African American women and just the power that I was not walking in. I had no idea all the gifts I was going to be given that year. And as God and the ancestors would have it, just sharing my journey and and my discoveries and uncoveries, it garnished like 40 million impressions, me alone in the trip. And that got the attention of the U.S. Embassy Ghana, of the president's office, the diaspora office. And so I started becoming the face of the diaspora face of the year of return for all these different events, because that year 2019 was the year of return. So that's why I was back and forth so much. And then I started working. I I designed projects with the U.S. Embassy Ghana. I designed projects with the diaspora office. So all of a sudden I was working in Africa, not just Ghana, but Senegal, Gambia, uh, Cote d'Ivoire, Togo. Like it was like all of a sudden Africa became home. Don't threaten me with a good time. Right. <laughs> that that that's how it happened. So why do you think you connected so much with with Ghana? And it, this seemed to be an instant connection as well. You know, so much of my life growing up, I had never been, first of all, to the continent. And so much of my life, I understood when I got there. Something as simple as African dance. I've been in dance class since I was three or four years old. You know, my mom was the kind of person that put me in tap, jazz, toe, ballet, African, you know, everything, right? 
And I hated African dance. I was like, I don't like the music. I don't like the moves. I don't get it. Why do I have to go? And when I tell you, I got off the plane in Ghana and we went to some event and there was a drummer and this woman dancing. And I was like, I, I know that form of dance. I know those moves. And here she comes. I guess my soul called hers. Here she comes, pulls me over and starts going. And I start going and I'm crying and dancing and we're saluting each other and calling each other sister in our moves. And I was like, this is why I learned this form of movement when I was five and six years old. So all of a sudden my life just started to make sense. If that makes any sense to you for me to say it that way. I, I told myself I was going to go same trip. I told myself I was going to go with the spirit of teach me and not be the spirit of I'm American who's now vacationing in Africa. And so I was open to the food, the language, the jewelry, the clothes. And I just think that my openness, they embraced and they just like gathered around me everywhere I went and just was like, try this, try that, learn this, learn that. And I just, it was so overwhelmingly uplifting and elevating that it changed my life. It just, like I said, it just, it changed my life. I realized that I was a visitor in America and I decided when I came back to America after that first trip, not even knowing I was going to go that many more times, Jay, not even knowing I was going back that many more times. And when I came back that first time, which would have been 2020, January of 2020, I said, you know what? I have to live out loud the fact that I am a visitor in the U.S. I can work in the U.S. I can stay as long as I want, but my home where I feel loved, understood, considered, revered, honored, royal, it was in Africa. It's hard to explain to people who haven't been, and I encourage anybody listening, if you can get there, you need to get there. Because as soon as you touch down, the whole theme is welcome home. You are not a guest, okay? And it's not a vacation. I wouldn't call it that, even though you do, you know, you have some fun things. Because listen, in Ghana, as you know, they know how to party. And I was like, okay. Oh. I wasn't ready. <laughs> right, right. Listen, I was telling a girlfriend of mine in Orlando yesterday that I walked into a, a drugstore and I guess on the radio one of their favorite songs came on and everybody was taking it down and I was like oh wow and they were going and I mean it was like the drugstore the kids the women the men and I was like okay okay and I started going I was like this is what I'm talking about I was like I love it here yeah it's true. It's like they they create a party anywhere. The yes. beaches, the clubs, I was like they they know how to turn up for sure. But I, I think it's more for us a pilgrimage. And when we were there, it was a group of 10 of us. And they told us in 2019 that 2.1 million visitors came from the U.S. And clearly you were responsible between you and Bozema and everybody for a huge chunk of those visitors. <laughs> that went. They called me Harriet Tubman because they were like, listen, you're taking us home. Leading us back. <laughs> Lean us back. Right. Uh, so what was um, and of course, one of the things that you is a must see when you go there is, of course, going to the slave castles, uh, going to the Cape Coast. What was your experience like when you visited those things? Well, I have to tell you, because we're talking about this, I'm actually launching a New Year, New You retreat in Ghana this year. I don't know why God put it on my plate with everything else I've got going, but you know, it's the season of overflow. So I'm just, you know, praying for sustenance and endurance at this point, trying to keep up with the, the overflow of blessings. Right. But the last two years 
I thought, I've got to do this New Year retreat. I've got to offer the experience that I had. And so I'm finally doing it, the AJ Aquia experience. It'll be December 31st. It starts New Year's Eve night through January 7th, the first week of the year. We're going to go through what I'm sure a lot you experienced too, but you know, with a little AJ spin on it. But as you mentioned, the slave castles, I, I felt like I learned a history I never knew. I felt like I learned so much beyond the history books, you know, to, to, to touch the walls of our ancestors, to be on the grounds of where we were taken from, to hear the history with an African accent from brothers and sisters on the continent, from the continent. It just hit different for me to learn the truth of how we were enslaved, how we were treated as enslaved Africans, what happened to board us on the boats and to ship us. The fact that you and I, and most of us who are African-American, are descendants of those African slaves who actually survived all of that. It just made me feel like I have got to do more than just twerk. Like, you know, I've got to, like, you know, I, there's, there's more to what, I, what my responsibility is to our ancestors and what they went through for us to even exist. I have got to do something that, that makes them proud of, of all they went through. And that was my big life shift from the, the slave dungeons. I was going to ask you, did you go to um, Ansan Mansu, the, the, the river where the last bath happened? No, we did not go there. You got to promise to let me take you. Okay. Next time you go to Africa or we have to time it a trip to, together, if you're not at the retreat, hint, hint, we, we got to go do the slave path to the last bath before they were enslaved. And it's in, it's called Ansan Mansu. And even just that, to stand in the waters where our ancestors were took their last bath, not knowing what was next for them. They had no idea they were getting ready to be enslaved. They knew something was different and wrong. They were chained together, stripped of their hair, stripped of their clothes, but they just didn't know what was going on. They couldn't communicate, different language, different dialect, everything. They had no idea what was happening. And I just, again, to, to be there to experience it, like you said, you can't describe it. You have to go and feel the water on your skin and feel the energy, feel the smells, the love of the people. I have never experienced anything like it in, in, in my world travels beyond, I just, it's Africa and every country. Like, I mean, I've got a long way to go. I've only been to six countries. I got 50 more to go, but every country I go to as different as it is, the common denominator, Jay, is the love, the love and the welcome. Yeah, I mean, it, it is going to the slave dungeons. You are hit with a myriad of emotions. Um, you know, uh, we being in those dungeons and when the, the guides are describing to you what those dungeons are like, we're we're talking about very small spaces where, you know, 400, 500 people were, uh, or, you know, men on one side, women on the other side. And to know that this was it was a church right above it. Right. So they heard the screams. They heard all of that. And you do realize that you are here for a deeper purpose, because I remember when our guy told us that realized they only took the strongest, only the strongest made it over. OK. And so from that, as horrific, obviously, as the transatlantic slave trade was, there should be a great sense of pride because we were not supposed to survive that. I mean, half of us were killed during it. And so those that survive the legacy that's left, it's like that's something we could be proud of. And 
it just it was a life changing trip. Yeah, for you too. Yeah, it was a life changing trip. Yep. And so when um I saw that you had been as many times and from a food standpoint, <laughs> let me tell you, they don't play around with the spicy. I love spicy food. So I was in my element. And I don't. Oh, you don't oh girl. God bless you. <laughs> I struggle. I'm learning. And that's the other thing, you know, I just gotta say that and I don't I have to say this because I don't want it to come off like all these trips have been planned. Like I'm just going, you know, because they're not like I went in December, 2020, which what I thought was going to be a two week stay in synagogue to serve at the orphanages. And the main reason I did that is because one, um, I wasn't quite sure of what the COVID was like in Ghana. I had been following and talking to friends from Ghana, so I knew it wasn't bad. But of course, because I hadn't been most of 2020, I didn't know what their not bad was compared to L.A. shut down for three times, right? Right. I mean, everybody's running around Atlanta and L.A. talking about it, it ain't bad. So I was like, okay, well, what's the not bad in Africa, right? <laughs> right. So I just said, well, you know what? Let me get to Senegal because I can do that without a visa. I can explore a new country because I'd never been. My focus was the French-speaking West Africa version of Africa anyway, because I speak fluent French. So I wanted to explore that anyway. And I got there to serve at Christmas time. And then the other countries started calling me saying, you made it, you're back. And for some reason, going back during the pandemic, it was even more attractive to them. Like that, that, that I wasn't afraid to get on an 11-hour flight to come back to Africa. And I got a plethora, Jay, of invitations. And that's how I traveled six countries from December to April, because LA was still closed down by January, February, if you remember. And I just stayed in Africa. I ended up being an African till May. And it was amazing. So I literally came back to the States from Africa to shoot my show, Life Therapy. So I literally, in the year of 2021, I can say I'm in the US working. I spent more time in Africa than, this, than, than the US this year. Wow. Yeah, that that you really are treating uh, the U.S. on some visitor status right now. But yes, let's talk about your work. Of course, many people became familiar with you through your uh, wonderful acting career and you switched up and uh, became a life coach, you know, wellness coach, uh, fitness coach, like all of the above. But I want to ask you a question that I ask every guest um, that's on this podcast. It is called Jamel Hill is Unbothered. So let me ask you, when did you become unbothered? Well, I think, uh, you know, golly, I've been dying to do this with you. So it's like a prayer answer. Um, actually, my unbothered, it was a process. It's different phases of unbothered. But I've got to go back to the first phase. And that's when my father started noticing that I wasn't happy. He would say stuff like my eyes weren't dancing, my smile wasn't bright. And we used to actually have arguments about it because the truth is he was right, but I wasn't ready to face that because I honestly didn't know where to go to find this, my smile again and, and the brightness in my eyes. As he said, I, you know, I was successful. I was a celebrity. I was wealthy. I was working. It's like, what am I, what do I have to complain about? And I was honestly miserable. What was taking away your light? You said, cause he said he didn't see the light in your eyes. What would you say is taking it up? I was trying to fit in and I didn't. I was trying to fit in with the whole idea of red carpets. And for me, red carpets represented, and the funny thing is, you know, being invited to them up the ass, right? But, but for me, red carpets represented a temporary validation. And I just never believed in that. Like, you know, you call my name for 3.7 seconds and then all of a sudden your flash and your attention moves to the next person and I'm being hurried out of the way. 
But that's the name of the business. You do a movie and in two weeks, you're hurried out of the way. You get on the red carpet, you're hurried out of the way. And I just kind of felt like I'm more than somebody who needs to be hurried out of the way. You know, I have more to contribute than hurry up and get out of the way. And so that, so trying to fit into that, I think he saw a dimming of my light. And to answer your question, that that was the beginning phase of my unbothered because I started to say, what happens if I chase what makes me happy? What could happen? And that's when I designed for myself first, my happy list. And it actually has become a staple tool with my clients and actually on the show. It's like, what truly makes me happy without self-sabotage, without criticism? And I got to tell you, again, first phase of my unbothered, the things I put on the list were like, you know, having a puppy, visiting friends from college um, that weren't in LA, um, walks on the beach, weekend trips away, just, just things that, that I love to do. Swing on the swing set at the playground, um, watch the sunset, things, just things. And when I put them on a piece of paper, I noticed I wasn't doing most of them because I was so busy chasing the acting, you know, making sure I was in town for the, the pilot season meant I couldn't travel from January to May. And I just started to see where I was choosing to stifle my life and therefore my degree of happiness, this doing this actress thing. And I just finally said, you know, I'm going to take a year and see what happens if I focus on my happiness. And what really happened is that I started being more public with my workouts and my nutrition plan and talking about my what made me happy. And more and more people, surprisingly to me at the time, were more interested in that than the acting chase. Because I guess everybody was doing the same thing. It's Hollywood, you're African-American, you're an actress, everybody's living the same life. And then here I am, you know, running two miles during my lunch break or drinking green smoothies instead of having donuts at the craft table. Or, you know, it's just, just the difference in me, not trying to fit in. I start to gain my happiness and more attention, which is interesting, right? Then another phase of my unbothered, I got to say, skip forward, um, my father passed and, and, you know, he said in his last days, if you don't do anything uh, in my name, please, please, please pursue this healthy living thing. Because he, he kept saying, you know, you're an amazing actress, obviously. But he would say, but your shit is saving people and changing people. He was like, that's your shit. So no one can do it like you. Nobody does it with your passion and your purpose. Promise me you'll do something with it. And so when he passed, I said, you know what, let me put a little bit more attention in his name on that. And the network started calling and the radio station started calling and, uh, you know, more celebrities started calling. And I was like, whoa. And then another phase of being unbothered was when I went to Africa. And I just learned that I can do it all if I decide to do it my way. And by that time, I feel like divinely ordained. By the time I went to Africa and started feeling that way, I had already built a healthy living brand of probably 10 years. Um, I had been away from the acting enough that people missed me, directors, producers, because now I started to say, if I go back into the acting thing and try to do both, there's a way I want to do it. There's people I want to work with. There's directors and producers. There's certain scripts and characters I want to do. So I started talking to favorite directors and producers. And every time I said to them, you know, if you have something, let me know. They'll be like, oh, my God, we've missed you. Of course. And literally in months, I started acting again and then life coaching and everything exploded at once. So all of that to say, as you can hear, I had different phases and different steps to my unbotheredness. And 
my gifts made room for me in that space. It was interesting as I was doing research to sit down and talk to you. You know, you losing your parents at different times has such a dramatic impact on your life. But out of both of them came a a, a purpose. We saw, you know, you just explained what happened when you lost your father. You sort of then this entirely new pathway opened up. When you lost your mother, what was the pathway that opened up after that? My mother passed of thyroid cancer. And she wasn't sick very long. I mean, from diagnosis to death was about 60 days, including like a surgery. And so it it was a very aggressive form of cancer. Um, I was an entering freshman at Spelman, so I wasn't around for a lot of it. So even that 60 days was really 30 days for me because I I was getting ready to go into school. You know, I, I left New Jersey for Atlanta to go to Spelman and literally October 31st, is her angel anniversary. So just think about the fact that I got to school probably mid-August and by Halloween, I was going home for her funeral. So where that shifted was, I was there at Spelman to be a theater major with a psychology minor. And when my mother passed, my disbelief, my um, lack of understanding, my fear of my own health, because I didn't know if it was something that was hereditary, all of that shifted my, my academic lifestyle. And I went into psychology chemistry for pre-med because I just thought I don't want anyone to have to lose someone and feel like I felt without an understanding. What I didn't realize was going to be lifelong, to be honest, but I launched into this space of whatever I have to do to not only understand what cancer is and what happened with her, I also want to avoid it as best I can with me and help other people. And that was my decision at 17, 18, if you can imagine. So My mom's death launched me into my healthy living, how I eat, my exercise routine, and just my love of movement and peace of mind and managing stress and everything that I was researching as a scientist, you know, an undergrad studying scientist, everything I researched that could prevent cancer became my lifestyle. Isn't that deep? That was kind of out of fear, but that's, but, but again, like you're saying, losing her led to who I've been that everybody watched me become, which is, you know, again, certified nutrition, certified life coach, certified fitness. So, so all of that came out of, like, you're, like you said, me growing and elevating upon the loss. Was your intention when you went into pre-med, did you intend to become a doctor? I thought I did. And then, you know, it's easy. See, here's the thing. I don't know what it's like at other HBCUs, but at Spelman, Um, because it's such a highly decorated institution and it's such a selective process to even be at Spelman, it's really great to walk around the campus. We say walk around inside the gates for four years, you know, toting your major and saying you're going to be this. And, you know, even now when I go over there, I meet astronautical biochemical engineers that are going to space. And I'm like, okay, what, what, what? Um, But, you know, that's like the thing, right? Because everybody's so intelligent. The, The GPA requirement, the selection process is so strict. But once it became time for me to get ready to graduate, I was like, this is cool and I'm hanging, but there's two factors that are kind of throwing me off. One, lab coats are not really fly enough for me. So I'm trying to figure out like, how am I going to become a doctor and like dress the way I want to dress? That's number one. And I still wanted to dance in a Janet Jackson video. So I was like, okay, before I go into a hospital in lab coat, I got to figure out the fashion and I got to dance with Janet. So we got to figure this out. And that's what made me say, okay, let me go to Hollywood. Let me just see what I can do. Let me get out of this performance bug, Janet or not, and then let's see what happens. 
And we all know the rest of that story. Yeah, Because at that point, had school days happened for you yet? School days happened on my way to L.A. So I really got a big old God yes. I call those God yeses when you're making a decision and something happens that could only be God saying, yes, girl, yes. So to me, that was a big old God yes. When when I realized, you know, a girlfriend of mine on campus, one of my Saras, I pledged Delta Sigma Theta, one of my Saras was like, girl, did you know that Spike's shooting a movie and he's here on campus location scouting? And I was like, what? And she was like, yeah, he's supposed to be here for homecoming and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, awesome. So at the time, I had been Miss Morehouse, which is homecoming queen for the, the AU Center at Morehouse and Spelman. So I basically had carte blanche all over campus. And I was like, I'm going to perform at the homecoming coronation. He's supposed to be there researching talent. I'm going to perform. And he's going to put me in his movie. And that's exactly what happened. And Spike is, is, is actually, I credit he and Robbie Reed, of course, amazing casting director. They're the ones who actually gave me my first on-screen credit, which gave me my SAG card. So just think about this. By the time I did get to L.A., I was a bona fide actress in a hot movie. And I'm walking the red carpet like two weeks after I got to L.A., as an actress in this hot movie. I didn't even realize then what it was. You know what I mean? I just was like, I had a couple of lines. This is awesome. Let's see what else I can do. But I had no idea that I was divinely being positioned to fly. Mm. Boy, I tell you, um, you know, when it comes together, that's when you know it's from God, right? When it comes together just so seamlessly, just like, okay, I didn't even plan for this. And Look what happened, right? Won't he do it, as they say? Yes. AJ, I have a lot more I want to talk to you about. Um, we got to get into your version of Kool-Aid because this is this is troubling my spirit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I went there. You're a version of Kool-Aid. Um, and definitely want to talk to you about life therapy as the taping of this podcast. Uh, the first episode was on last night. And um, I, I made sure to DVR it and check it out. So I'm going to talk to you about that and um, just some more therapy related things. So uh, we'll be back more with AJ Johnson. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Among the many reasons I wanted AJ Johnson as a guest on the podcast is because I just love her energy. She loves to uplift, amplify, and edify people, especially black women. And I got a story to tell about a recent experience I had that convinced me I need to do a better job of uplifting black women in the smallest ways. Last week, I went to the grocery store because I was really committed this year to getting my Thanksgiving shopping done early. It's something I say every year, but when it comes to putting it in practice, I always fall short. Not this year. This year, I had my shit together, okay? At the beginning of the month, I got my greens, froze them. I got all the things I needed for mac and cheese and dressing because last year I messed around and on Thanksgiving Eve, I was in the grocery store, which is the wrong place to be. I mean, it was so many folks in there that you would have thought that they were giving away food for free. I wasn't trying to be caught up in a grocery store fighting over the last can of cranberry sauce. Anyway, the Sunday before Thanksgiving, I pulled into the grocery store and parked next to a black woman, which is in no way unusual because I live in a predominantly black neighborhood. 
And as soon as I stepped outside my car, sister girl goes, girl, I see you out here rolling up a net. And she gestures toward my car in appreciation, which for context is a matted out black Maserati. Sister girl then says, do your thing, girl. I see you. I smiled. No, let me be clear. I cheesed and thanked her. This was not about my car, but in that moment, I was just overwhelmed with love and gratitude by this stranger because there is something special about black women just randomly hyping other black women they don't even know. I put what happened to me out on Twitter and the feedback was just incredible. So many black women and men and all kinds of folks telling stories of how they have received these pick me ups from black women when they're just out and about doing normal shit. Twitter user Born to Run, who from his profile picture appears to be a black man, wrote, I had this experience at the grocery store today. Random older black woman stopped me to compliment my hair. And I was like, yeah, I'm Teflon for the rest of the day. What a feeling. Another Twitter user misunderstood. A black woman wrote, I was stormed for Halloween some years ago. And as I stepped out the car and walked into the party, these two black women cheering and clapped the whole time. OK, Storm, I see you. See, that's the energy I need to be on. Of course, I've used this platform and many others to amplify and support black women, but I realize that amplification and support doesn't always have to be some grand gesture. It can be something as small as telling a black woman you appreciate something about her right then and there in that moment, telling her that her earrings are dope or that she's wearing the shit out of an outfit or that her shoes are fly. Of course, it doesn't always have to be appearance based, but we need to just let black women know that they don't have to be superhuman to be appreciated. So let's normalize appreciating each other. Now back to more with A.J. Johnson. You know, as we talked about in the first half of the podcast, A.J., uh, you have dedicated a lot of time to counseling people. Uh, I saw the work that you did on couples therapy on VH1, which is loosely affiliated, obviously, with Love and Hip Hop. Saw you on there. You counseling my boy Trick Daddy. <laughs> Try to help trick through some things. <laughs> and, and my boy for years. That was so amazing to me. It's my trick and joy have been my friends for years. Yeah. But it is it is amazing because so many celebrities trust you. You know, they trust you. They trust your your counsel, your input. They listen to you. Uh, I don't know if celebrities were always your focus when you first began to kind of branch out and become a health, wellness and life coaching brand. But why do you think so many celebrities gravitated towards you and then trusted you to improve their lives? You know, I got to tell you, first, I didn't choose the business. I wasn't saying I was going to step away or pivot into another brand or business. I, like I said before, I, I felt like I was just doing something that made me happy. I love to hike. I love to work out. I love taking care of myself and I love the results of it. I love seeing the results of it. So it was easy to fill my day with healthy recipes and smoothies and hikes and workouts. And, and of course, a lot of my friends are, were at the time and still are in that arena. So my whole life became healthy living. Then I think, like as you're asking celebrities, because I was working, and of course that's my environment, I think they started to pay attention to, one, my consistency, two, that I was getting my happy back and my joy and my brightness, living this life that I loved, that I kept hidden for so long because I didn't think that that was popular you know, in the Hollywood sector. Hollywood, you're supposed to stay at the party all night and then go to the after party. I was like, I got to go to bed by 11 because I got to get up and run. And people were like, what? So, I mean, you know, I was, again, trying to fit in. 
I wasn't fitting in. So I think a lot of celebrities started to see where I was common enough like them in terms of the lifestyle, um, the popularity, um, understanding the the demands of the business and, and that career and living the life in L.A. But I think they noticed I was finding a way to make it work for me. And I feel like as I look back over my celebrity clientele, even though they've asked for different things from me as a life coach, the common denominator is them finding their place and their space and they're happy within themselves. And so I think that's what it was. My consistency, you know, I mean, from house party to here has been 30 years plus. So I think that's the other thing. I try to live a consistent lifestyle. And so I think that's an automatic thing to trust. You've been watching me since house party. So if I can still get in the house party outfit, I got to be doing something right in terms of weight management, right? So I think even that, it's like, you know, I, my body hasn't changed very much. If anything, people say I look better. My energy hasn't changed. My look hasn't changed very much. And I think for people to see that is what makes them call me because they want whatever I'm eating and drinking, as they say. More importantly, though, can you still do the house party dance routine with Tisha Campbell? <laughs> Why does everybody think I can't do it? Like, what is that? I, I, I want to know that. That's the question. What makes well? What makes you think I can't? I just do it? I just asked the question. Clearly, you can, right? <laughs> okay, clearly you can. Clearly, clearly, I'm in my feelings about it, right? I'm like, yes, I can still do the house party dance. Um, actually, better more now than ever because you know I didn't know what I was doing then. Now I know it. It's it's worth a million bucks if you can go down and have Megan Stallion knees. So I'm like, well, how about Megan got AJ knees? Because I was down there first. So. <laughs> You know, um, yes, you know, I and you can choreograph that, correct? Yes. Yes. So that's that's part of my DNA. Like that's not going anywhere. Just I can't do a back back handspring anymore, but I can damn sure do this, the, the charade house party dance. Right. Yeah. Um, while we're in the subject of uh, house party, um, is it true that you only made four grand from house party? Yes. For the whole month or two, we filmed as a hired actress. And it was Favorite Nations. We all made four grand. And what's interesting is once the movie came out and it was such a hit, Burger King came and asked, I think it was Play and I, if we would sign the rights to one of our scenes for a commercial. And a Burger King commercial became me in the window when Play comes and says, we got to go get kid, kid out of jail. And I'm like, I'm not going anywhere. And he goes, if you come with me, we'll go to Burger King. And I go, Burger King? Do you remember that scene? I do. <laughs> Listen, we made more money on that commercial, Jay, than we made doing the movie. Wow. That's yes. amazing. Yes. I, I'm sure you, you have heard that there's plans. I believe it's LeBron James's production company to remake House Party. I think they're finished. They're finished. Were you a part of the remake? I was not. One, I mean, in all fairness, I wasn't asked to be part of it. Um, I know some people who were, and it was... Let's just say um, from what, I, what I've learned, it was a little bit unorganized in terms of how it went down. I mean, listen, a lot of productions are, so that doesn't mean anything. You know, by the time you see it on the screen, you never know the problems behind the scenes. And that's called Hollywood, right? So that doesn't really mean anything. But, you know, I just think that it's one thing to do sequels and prequels, but to try to do remakes of certain things, it's kind of tough. So I'm anxious to see what they do. Mm -hmm. But you did, um, it, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, You, it seemed like you made the decision to kind of discontinue the Shireen character. Is that fair? Yeah, it's fair, but but it's I have to say it's it's fair with reason. 
by the time House Party 2 and 3 came, and it's so interesting how these kind of answers now speak to my loyalty and my creativity. Reggie Hudlin, to me, gave us all such a launch, the writer-producer of House Party 1. He gave us all such a platform to be creative, to be ourselves, to create together. You know, he wasn't one of those writer-producer directors who, even in his first project for a feature, which House Party was, you know, a lot of writer-producer directors are very specific about, you know, say my words, you know, do my blocking, make sure you do what I wrote. And Reggie wasn't like that. He was like, you know, you guys are helping me create this. So, you know, you got it's your character. You know who Shireen is. What would she do? Would she stand here on the counter? Would she sit outside on the patio while her nails, you know, what would she be doing? All these little things, like even on this in the scene before we go to the party and Tisha and I are sitting outside on that little ghetto stoop. And, you know, I just, I had just painted my nails. Like that was a character choice. Cause you know, he was like, well, what would you be doing sitting here talking? And I was like, you know what? She'd be letting her nails dry. And, you know, and just blowing and talking. And then, and then, and then, and he was like, I love that. I love that. You know, trying to be grown. You know, she was trying to be grown. So, you know, when, when, when House Party 2 and 3 came and he was not a part of it, I first felt like, well, how do you have a part two of something that was so epically created by someone and may not be a part of it? He is the vision. So where do we go without him? You know, it's like going to Oz without the wizard being there. Like, what's the point, right? That was one thing. And then when I met with Doug McHenry and George Jackson about the first scripts, um, I just didn't feel like the script was capturing what I envisioned the friendships to evolve to. I felt like the scripts were more safe and predictable in terms of where the character relationships went as opposed to where we could go. And for me, my take was, we had become such so known for our friendship as in terms of a group. I felt like we were we were going to be the black brat pack. Do you remember that? It was like Demi Moore, Rob Lowe. Remember that whole Ali Sheedy? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Everybody loved them and their chemistry and their friendship. I felt like we were the black version, and that just was not what I saw in the script. So I just said, you know, I'm going to wait. And literally, once I said I was going to wait, I booked Sister Act with Whoopi Goldberg, the first one. And it could have been Assassins with Sylvester Stallone. So now all of a sudden, I say no to House Party 2 and 3, but now I'm thrust into the Julia Roberts, Whoopi Goldberg, you know, studio film on that level. So once again, it's like, oh, so God is saying, yes, girl, yes, you know, to keep going. So that's what happened. See, I feel like you're evading the real story because as the meme said, the reason we didn't see Shireen anymore is because Shireen became Juanita from from boy. <laughs> from baby boy because <laughs> you went on to have Tyrese that's what happened to you <laughs> and Tyrese's daddy is play and why are we trying not to <laughs> and like I said to the meme why y'all in my business why y'all in my business right, right? Sheree disappeared because she had Tyrese that's what happened that's the <laughs> that's, story and I'm going to the grave with it don't let AJ fool you <laughs> <laughs> So uh, was it creative license for you to tell, I guess it was your little brother at house party to go make the Kool-Aid that you never had? <laughs> it's a true story, ladies and gentlemen. AJ has never had Kool-Aid. Here's the thing. It's not fully true that I've never had Kool-Aid. I mean, I know what Kool-Aid was. Okay. I had never, when I, when I said, I don't know what that is, and the story became I had never had Kool-Aid, my, my household was more a high C orange and high sea grape. Oh, you from one of those households. Girl, listen, listen, and Hawaiian punch. Do you remember Hawaiian punch? Oh yeah. See, that's what I grew up on. So by the time it was Kool-Aid and they were saying grape or red, I was lost. 
I was like, what's red? And I don't understand. And I'll never forget, I went to who was still a very good friend, Keenan Ivory Wayans. I went to him and I said, what does this line mean? I've got this line where I'm supposed to say grape or red and I don't understand. And he was like, you're talking about the flavors. And he made me feel so stupid because I still didn't know what I was talking about. He said, you're just talking about the flavors. I didn't want to ask again. And so I just decided, let me just throw the line away because I don't know what I'm talking about. And it was, so that's really what the story was. I was like, I have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm just going to say it. And then Tisha said later, you know, we never say the flavors. You always say the color. And then I said, okay. She said, that's like the project version of it. And I was like, yeah, but then I say grape. I don't say purple. She was like, oh my God, never mind. Just say the line. So that that's really what it was. I was just a high C Hawaiian, Hawaiian punch kid. Oh, so if they'd have had, you know, Hawaiian punch or high C, you would have got it. But unfortunately, you didn't know we only go by colors. Like there is no cherry. There's no tropical punch. It's, it's grape, red, yes. blue. Like that's what we do. <laughs> I, <laughs> I had no idea. No idea. A second ago, I, I brought up Baby Boy. Um, you know, obviously for a, a lot of people, it was such a tremendous loss. John Singleton no longer with us. You know, that movie, it really, it, it's just it's just a cult classic. It stands the test of time. So many themes in Baby Boy that are still uh, very prevalent today and very much applicable to today. Um, when you think about John Singleton, what's the first thing or first few things that come to mind? It's still clearly a really painful lost for me um, for a couple of reasons. Um, I was in Africa when um, he got sick and I didn't get to, I didn't get back in time to see him. But interestingly enough, even with that, it, it connected me and Tyrese and Taraji deeper over from where we were over the years after baby boy. It, it's almost like John reconnected us before he physically left us. Um, because we were all scrambling, trying to get to his side and trying to update each other on, you know, what was happening. John was just a special person in my life anyway. He was one of the best directors I've ever worked with, primarily because he made me feel safe. He made me feel like I was as good as my choices. There was never a bad choice with John as an actress. He may hone it some way or or enhance it, but he always encouraged you to create a character. And, you know, he stretched me as an actress. Like even when we got on the set of Baby Boy, I had been working with directors who would say, okay, here's your mark, here's your lighting. By the end of the scene, you're gonna go from the sink to the kitchen table. And on this line before we, you know, we call cut, I need you to be able to sit down. And I got on the set with John and I was and I was saying like, well, what's my direction? And he was like, well, you're Juanita, you tell me. And I was like, I, I don't know. And he was like, well, you better figure it out before I say roll camera because this is your kitchen, it's your house. You know, all I need to know is you know where we start and you know where the scene ends. So you, you, I'm just following you. I had never worked that way before. So I quickly got stretched into more character development, more choice making, and it's a brilliant way to work. John also required that we not lose character on set. So even if you weren't working and you came to set, you couldn't just show up out of character, out of costume. Like if you were out of costume, you better still be Juanita when you came on set for whatever reason, because he was like, we're not shooting a movie. We're telling a story and we don't need anybody coming in, interrupting the storytelling. And so I love that. Even my castmates didn't know that I did not smoke cigarettes until we wrapped because from the table read to 
you know, days I, I got on set where I wasn't shooting, you know, I always had Juanita cigarette and I was always puffing. I mean, they didn't know that I was smoking cloves and cinnamon, but, you know, I just, I still, you know, I had my cigarette thing going and let it hang from my mouth and, you know, drank, had my coffee and it was just character development. So, but even before John as a director, he was such a good friend. He was my confidant. We were college nerds. So we would just talk about all kind of nerdy stuff. And he would call me and say, guess what? I saw the special on how Band-Aids were made. And I was like, really? What did they say? So, I mean, we just, you know, that, that was just who we were over the years. He was my friend. And I'm, I'm honored that I got a chance to work with him. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, it was such a difficult loss. But, you know, his films, as you know, I mean, they're they're going to live forever. I mean, what he, what he gave us is going to be culturally an imprint uh, until the test of time. Uh, I want to get back to the therapy version of, of AJ. But before we do that, I, w- I want to add, Jamel, I think I have to also say probably one of the reasons why it chokes me up so bad still, not only because, you know, I lost one of my closest friends in John, but I want to make sure you also hear, you know, John was very instrumental in, in a lot of my transition and a lot of my choices. You know, when I say he was my confidant and my safety place, I was going to him a lot saying, you know, I'm, I'm bored as an actress, you know, I'm bored. Like, you know, when I was saying, who do you talk to about things like that? John was one of my friends that I could safely trust in my, in my truth. And so even to not have that anymore is, is painful, but, but he was one of those people that was just my, my soul place, you know? Yeah, I know. I mean, especially I think uh, it's important, I'm assuming for you to have that safety because as you said earlier, people will look at your life and they'll look at the the outside and say, like, I, what are you complaining about? I don't understand, you know, and there'll be something completely going on differently that's happening on the inside. And you talk to people about this often. That's part of how you counsel and relate to people is by telling them, you know, hey, it matters what's going on in here. And, and that's why I wanted to ask you. Um, I know that every case is different. I'm not talking about just celebrities. Um, but what I love about like life therapy is that you're sort of attacking things from all angles. Life therapy, which is on TV one, I believe, correct? Yes. Uh, yeah. TV one. And so uh, it's a weekly show. It's very deep and introspective. And I think what I loved about watching it is that it forces you to ask yourself certain questions. Like it may be somebody's situation that doesn't really even apply to you. And this episode um, that aired the first episode about the young lady with lupus, when you were talking about so emotionally about mother daughter relationships, I mean, sometimes my mother and I, we have a difficult relationship. And so seeing their journey, it gave me some good Intel into how and informing me about how I approach my relationship. So I say all this to say a very long winded way. I'm wondering how is it that you have such an ability to meet people where they are? Like you never make people feel bad about how they feel, even if it's, you know, (laughs) a little whatever, but you never like you. It's just, I think that's just the gift that you have and people who are sort of in your position have, but you always meet people where you are. How are you able to do that? Well, I want to point out an episode that's coming. And I want to hear your take when it comes, because I don't know if I do such a good job (laughs) in this episode coming, but it's an episode and it's literally in the first, like we just did the the premiere was last night in the next couple of weeks. It's an episode where um, there's a young lady who uh, African-American who grew up in a cult, a cult family. And I was very unaware of the large number of, of black cults in the country. I mean, do you know this, that there's a lot of black cults? 
Uh, no, you said large number. I'm like, really? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know it. And when she wrote in and asked for my help because she's trying to heal from a situation in the family, I don't want to give too much away, but it's a deep situation. And one of the things as executive producer of Life Therapy, I, I made a list of what I wanted to do as executive producer for the show. And one of the things at the top of my list was I wanted to tackle subjects that were new to me because one, I wanted to stretch in front of your eyes as a person and as a life coach, but I also wanted to give other life coaches permission to not know everything. Light workers have a tendency to get a God complex, doctors, uh, lawyers, therapists, and I wanted to represent, you know, we can research in real time. And for me as a life coach, part of my technique is to say, I may not know everything, but let's journey together. I'll be your accountability partner and let's figure it out together. Um, and I wanted to make sure that, that that part of therapy got shown because again, like you're saying, as an African-American community, we shy away from therapy. So I wanted to check the box. How can I show therapy in a different light where people will receive it more and not, not shun away from it like we have done as a culture, but run to it to get the extra help to move you know, through and to our better, right? So I think it's part of the gift, honestly, that I've never been judgmental. Even when people try to think that I am, I'm really being curious. Like I'll ask questions and people will be like, why, why are you bringing it up? And I'm like, no, I seriously want to know. Like I'm blunt, I'm honest, I'm curious, I'm a science mind. So I ask a lot of questions and I got to tell you, Jay, I'm actually amazed at how people so quickly connect and, and trust me. In the show, you're going to see real time. Every episode, every single episode, when I actually meet people, each opening segment, once I meet the person, is probably about eight minutes of an edit. But we only talk about an hour in our shoot day. And so all of that that you saw me and Antoinette cover, it happened in an hour conversation. So that connection was very authentic and divine. And it happens like that for me all the time. I think that's part of the gift. And, and I'm honored to show it and share it in real time like we do on the show. When you um, are deciding to be somebody's um, life coach, what are some of the, the traits or attributes you're looking for where you feel like your coaching could help them that, you know, this ultimately relationship is going to work? I look for the connection. You know, this work for me as a life coach, it's personal. And the blessing for me is I don't have to do it. Thank God I have other careers. So this is a choice and it's a, it's a calling on my life, I believe. So there's got to be a connection. There's got to be a mutual commitment. I don't want to want your better more than you want. So if I'm going to dive in and you're going to dive in, the, the better you're after, the answers you're after are inevitable. But I don't want to push and lose sleep at night and it's not really the big of a deal for you. So I ask certain questions and I've learned to, to dive in to a certain degree to see if I can create the connection. When someone shows an interest in you, and I'm sure you probably feel the same way, when someone shows an interest in you, there's an immediate connection and an immediate feeling of acceptance and safety. And so when, I, when that's received, I know that we're going to work well together. I ask a lot of questions. And when the client, potential client at the time, doesn't shy away from the questions, I know we can work together. I'm going to put uh, myself on the couch before I get you out of here. <laughs> this, I mean, this pandemic has, I know um, for a lot of people, it's been tough. And uh, the pandemic has been like the busiest year of my career ever, which is good. It's good. Me too. 
Yeah, I mean, it's been so busy. And you being somebody who has their hands in so many things, I'm wondering if you could offer any tips about how not to feel drained. Like, I feel so drained all the time. And I'm still a newlywed. I got another week or so before. I guess supposedly it's over after two years. That's what I heard. (laughs) Uh, I just worry so much about just not having enough energy, not having enough boundaries set up. So I'm wondering how do you... I don't know if you have work-life balance. I'm guessing you probably don't either. <laughs> but but what gives you energy or what gives you an ability to keep all these different boats afloat that you have in the ocean? I'm going to be honest with you, Jay. I, you know, there's different levels to the balance. Yes, I do believe I have life-work balance. I actually, you know, used to teach it to some corporate clients. I had some pharmaceutical deals in my my life coaching. And, and some of the work I did with them was teaching their internal executive level life work balance because you know it costs them more money when someone's out sick than for them to move forward and so you know they were saying listen if you can help us keep our you know out sick rate down help us so i do believe in life work balance i learned how to have it what's new for me like you in this pandemic is it's been the busiest two years of my entire career i remember praying and wanting all my cylinders to pop at the same time, the acting, the life coach, the travel, philanthropy. And I never knew that the season of overflow where all of them would pop would be where I'd be like, wait, hold on. It's like, I asked to learn how to play tennis and I walk out and Serena's like, let's go bitch. And I'm like, wait, wait, wait. You know what I mean? It's like, that's how I feel. Like, you know, I don't know whether to swing or duck at the ball, you know? But I, I will say that my boundaries have changed. I've gotten more strict with my boundaries. You know, the pandemic has helped because I have no time for hangout or social. I have no energy for hangout and social. So the fact that we have to social distance in certain parts of the world in the country, it's actually helped me because I don't feel bad about I can't go. I'm not showing up. Don't invite me because I can't make it. I don't feel bad because I don't have the time to do it. I would say that if I'm going to give any suggestion, don't be afraid to set the boundaries that work for you. You know, you're in the season for a reason. and it's got, it requires uh, a spiritual and mental and physical focus that may be completely new, but your elevation is new. And so you have to be open to all that comes with the elevation. All of this elevation requires a different focus, different time, different boundaries, different time management, different conversations. Your husband now has to understand, you know, there's a different you that's being asked to show up. And in your partnership, your partnership, even in two years of marriage, may have to shift a little for him to support that in you and for you to have to support him. So be open to the shifts, I guess is my personal thing, is be open to the shifts because there's going to be shifts in your elevation. Yeah, you're you're 100% right about that. I guess the part I have to get over is sometimes feeling guilty about those shifts. You know, it's like I want to be able to give a certain percentage, if not a large percentage, you know, to my marriage. But sometimes I can't. You know, and so it weighs on me sometimes like I wish that I could. Um, And he knows that like he's he's super supportive of of my career. But it's more just like a personal desire where I'm just like, you know, I got married for a reason. I'd really like to (laughs) make sure. Yeah, I married you because I thought I was going to sleep with you every night. I didn't realize it was going to be roommate. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It's like, okay, but I, I, I think that that's probably a common struggle that a lot of women, type A women, especially you know, kind of face. So I'm, I'm figuring it out, but the boundaries, you're a hundred percent right. I've made certain boundaries, certain times of the year, 
that where things it just has to go on without me. And it just kind of is what it is. And I'll tell you, even just as a suggestion, look up, not that you don't already, because I know you're a studier as a journalist, but look up some of the women that you value their, their grind and, and actually Google their schedules, or you probably know some of them and may have never had this conversation, but like, I pay attention to Serena's work ethic. You know, I've had the, the gift of life coaching a lot of the women that we're talking about that I look up to. So to watch Beyonce's work ethic and watch her in the studio with her hat turned backwards, practicing the same note 25,000 times across three hours in the studio, you know, Shaka Khan, you know, making sure that when she's sings through the fire, she's hitting the notes like she did 20 years ago. You know, Stevie, Stevie doesn't sleep. You know, he creates better at night. So he's up all night, tootling, tooling, tooling with different instruments. So the greatness, I believe, I've been shown that, that the greatness requires a different level of commitment. And so it's a matter of you and your partner and family and friends, whatever, deciding what the formula is to live through successfully the level of commitment to greatness. Mm, okay, that's a word. Uh, I receive it <laughs> big time. <laughs> All right, before we get you out of here, got some fun questions for you. Uh, it's a game that I play with all my guests. It's called This or That. The choice is yours. You can oh. get with this or you can get with that. You can oh. get with this or you can get with that. You can get with this. So you get two choices. You got to make one. All right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, first up, Tupac or Biggie? Tupac. Ooh, look, I like that certainty. She was like, Tupac. <laughs> Challenge me. All right. Uh, Martin or Fresh Prince of Bel-Air? And I know you have a history with both shows, correct? I do. Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Because I played Will's girlfriend. I, I guess start on Martin, but I played Will's girlfriend. Right. So which one you picking? Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. <laughs> Is that because you was the girlfriend? Is that what it was? Probably. <laughs> uh, guns and butter or butt naked making eggs in the kitchen? <laughs> We're talking about Ving Rhames, people, from Baby Boy. Exactly. <laughs> You know what? I'm going to say butt naked, making eggs in the kitchen. Because you know what? That was so spontaneous. Bing didn't tell any of us he was going to do that. So the, the, the part of the scene that didn't make that scene is actually Jody walks in and then I walk in and we're bumping into each other trying to get out of the way of Melvin's behind as he's standing there making eggs. But it was already so funny with Jody walking in. They didn't need me, so they cut my part out. But can I tell you, we both walked in and literally fumbled all of each other because we did not plan to see Bing's ass in our face at all. It's super amazing that y'all stayed in character after seeing this man, but <laughs> making some hicks. <laughs> it was brilliant. It was brilliant. Uh, and finally, who is the better dance duo? You and Tisha or Kid and Play? Come on. That's not even a fair question. Me and Tisha. Me and Tisha. Oh, listen, all they're known for is the kickstep. Blah, 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 blah. That's all they're known for. Me and Tisha got routines and soul train. You know what I mean? So, so hands down, me and Tisha. That's not even a contest. That's right. Throw the gauntlet down like it's us, period. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. There's dances they can't even do. All they do is go to the kickstep. <laughs> 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 well, well uh, listen, AJ, I just want to uh, wrap things up here. I appreciate you taking some time out. Uh, again, I know you're super busy. Um, and so this really meant a lot to me that you were able to spend this time on the podcast, giving us some nuggets, some jewels, some things we can carry with us and just explaining uh, your journey, which is really remarkable. So people, please catch on Instagram because you're always giving like 
frequent motivations to people in your video. I'm also doing on Instagram Live. I now have moved into the day after on Wednesdays, Wellness Wednesdays. So I'm actually going to go live with every guest the day after the show and talk about exactly. So you have to tune in. Nice. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, still, still living the way I live on Instagram, just dealing with the expanded territory. You know what I mean? Making it work. I hear you. So make sure you guys check out Life Therapy. A lot of good stuff that's in there. Even if the specific situation doesn't apply, something is going to apply to you for sure. <laughs> um, anyway, thank you very much. Appreciate you. Love you, sis. AJ's getting out of here. Y'all know what's coming up next. Fuck it, I'm bothered. I have a lot of thoughts on the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict after they determined that he wasn't guilty of murder after he shot one person and killed two other people during the unrest in Kenosha, uh, Wisconsin last year, which followed the police shooting and paralyzing Jacob Blake. But this fucking I'm bothered is about the people that Rittenhouse killed Anthony Huber and Joseph Rosenbaum. A recent social media post by actor Michael Rappaport caught my eye. Rappaport posted a mugshot of Rosenbaum, a registered sex offender who sexually abused five boys and received a 10 year prison sentence in 2002. He also had pending criminal cases, including one accusation where he is accused of body slamming his fiance after she found pornography on his phone. Anthony Huber was a felon who had been found guilty of strangulation and suffocation and domestic abuse. He also was convicted in that case of felony false imprisonment with a dangerous weapon stemming from a fight he had with his brother. Now, even the man who survived Rittenhouse's attack had a criminal record, drunk driving, being intoxicated while brandishing a firearm uh, and some other minor charges. These are all very serious charges. But I was struck by something Rappaport wrote in his caption. He wrote, we also say child molesters deserve the worst. This POS and he means piece of shit got off easy. And so did Rittenhouse. There's no sides as far as I'm concerned. Well, actually, there is. There's the side that says we can't become a society where citizens take the law in their own hands, even when it comes to people who do vile, horrible things. When Kyle Rittenhouse decided to shoot these men, he did not know they had such an extensive criminal history. He wasn't trying to do society a favor. He was walking the streets with an AR-15 and the man who survived the shooting said in court he pulled a gun on Rittenhouse because he thought Rittenhouse was an active shooter. It's as if Rittenhouse and the three men he shot met at a four-way stop and the jury just decided that Rittenhouse had the right of way. Even though if I see a man walking down the street with an assault rifle strapped to his back, I'm probably going to assume that person is not a good guy. I'm going to assume that by doing something that bold, they have bad intentions. Kyle Rittenhouse wasn't found not guilty because he killed two people who some would consider to be shitty people. He was found not guilty because this country has a long history of encouraging white men to be vigilantes, especially when it comes to protecting their property from black people. It's why Kenosha Alderman Kevin Mathewson told the public that, quote, patriots willing to take up arms and defend our city from evil thugs told them to come to Kenosha. 
even though at that point of the unrest in the city, nobody had been killed. It's why the police didn't even stop Rittenhouse when he walked past them with an AR-15. They considered him to be unofficially one of them. He had the right to defend his territory. Who cares if it was territory that wasn't actually his? Throughout history, there are numerous cases of white men being given the authority to behave recklessly, endanger or even kill people to protect their white way of life. The Tulsa massacre started because an armed white mob attacked black residents and their businesses in the Black Greenwood District, otherwise known as Black Wall Street. All over the rumors that a black teenager had somehow made a young white elevator operator, a woman, feel uncomfortable. It was white male vigilantes who murdered Emmett Till after a white woman said he flirted with her in the store days before. They also were found not guilty. Although the people Rittenhouse shot were white, the system still performed masterfully, giving white people's fear the benefit of the doubt and turning it into a justification to disobey the law. Fear certainly did not stop Rittenhouse from going to Kenosha to protect what wasn't his. Fear didn't stop George Zimmerman from getting out of his vehicle and confronting teenager Trayvon Martin. Nor did fear stop Gregory and Travis McMichael from arming themselves, stalking Ahmad Arbery, and then murdering him. Fear doesn't stop them from initiating confrontations. And yet somehow that same fear becomes what shields them from the consequences of their actions. Justifying Rittenhouse's vigilante behavior by insinuating the victims got what they deserve follows a disturbing pattern of condoning white vigilanteism, which already seems to have more than enough protection under the law. Stay unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Christina Tapper is our head of content. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Rich Burner is our head of network production. And Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, our executive producer is Christina Tapper. Supervising producer is Jifa Yador. And project manager is Jessica Dow. Our theme, Word of the Week, and Fuckin' Unbothered tracks were written and performed by Brandon Lowe, produced by Lucas Bry and Alexander Hitchens. This or That Music, The Choice is Yours, revisited by Black Sheep, written by Andre Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc. on behalf of itself and Peep Boat Music. You can find me at Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. And please remember to hit follow on Jamel Hill is Unbothered on Spotify and share with your friends. Huh. This sound like theme music. She dropped word of the week. It's best to use it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Jamel asked this or that, get to choosing. Pick one. Child of 75 and 21, wave goodbye to 45. Bye-bye. Don't make me tell you 511 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live. It. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it. My word, how I live. It. You